You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to lecture number eight in this series on theology of the Old Testament. So far we've covered the 21 historical books and the last couple lectures we covered the seven wisdom books of the Old Testament. The third part of Old Testament theology has to do with the prophets. And of the prophets there are what are called four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, and then there are 12 minor prophets. The 12 minor prophets are called minor because their prophetical books are short compared to the major prophets. So that's the shortness as opposed to longness, that's the difference. They're all prophets, but uh, the major prophets have much more extensive books. They have much more to say than the minor prophets. A prophet is one who speaks for another. And so these prophets of the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they're speaking for God. I suppose in today's terminology, they would say something like a press agent or something like that, a spokesperson, a spokesman for somebody. That's what they are. They proclaim God's word to his people. The prophets come on the scene after the appointment of the kings. We have some minor prophets during the time of David, Nathan and Gad, they didn't write anything. But the prophets who started writing, the first one is Amos, around 760 before Christ. He's the first one that has his name attached to a book. So a total number of 16 of them, but he's the first one. The main function of these prophets is not predicting the future. That's one of the things that they do. But the main thing they do is to proclaim God's word and to call the people back to observance of God's law. The Hebrew people were, as scripture says, a hard-necked people. They murmured, they rebelled, they refused to keep the covenant, and for that God punished them. So you have this notion of sin and guilt running all the way through the prophets. The prophets are confronted with a historical situation in which the people are not observing the law. So they are sent by God after having had an experience of God, something like a mystical experience. And God communicates certain things to them like Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and he sends them to his people to call them to repentance, to recognize their sins, to repent of that, and to change their ways. So there's like a call for conversion here, we might say, on the part of the prophets. And they want to get the people to interiorize their religion, not just have external sacrifices in the temple of killing all these animals, that there's more to their religion than that. It has to be a matter of the heart where they love and praise God and show respect and honor to their neighbor and recognize the dignity of their neighbor. So one of the main obstacles then that the prophets encounter is sin among the people and rebellion 
and refusal to follow God's law. It's because of this that the Jewish religion is called ethical monotheism. Ethical monotheism, that is monotheism because there's only one God, that's Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's ethical because this God makes moral demands on the Jewish people. That is, they have to keep the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Honor thy father and thy mother, and so forth. It's ethical. There's a moral dimension to it. Predicting the future about the fall of Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah, that's also an aspect of the prophet. But it's a minor aspect compared to the overall situation of speaking for God and calling people to observance of the law. Now, in today's lecture, I want to concentrate on two of the prophets, the two great prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah uh, was born in 765, and he began to prophesy around the year 740, and the last prophecy is around 701. And it's during his time that you have a king like Hezekiah, and you have the reform, and you have the fall of Israel in the north. In 721, the Assyrians came in, destroyed Israel, and carried off the ten tribes off to Assyria. The ten tribes disappeared from history after that time. That took place during this time of Isaiah. Sometimes it's said that the difference between Isaiah and Jeremiah, that Isaiah was anxious to be a prophet, and he responded immediately, whereas Jeremiah was very young and he was more reluctant. The call of the prophet is given expression not in the first chapter, but in the sixth chapter, where we read in his own words, Isaiah says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. An angel comes to him and touches a burning coal to his lips as a sign to cleansing his mouth and his lips so that he might proclaim the word of the Lord to the people of that particular time. Now, all of the prophets, what they have to say is related to the political and the social situation in which they lived. During the time of Isaiah, the people had fallen away from the real fullness of the worship of the Lord, and he prophesied the fall of Samaria in 721-722. He calls people back to observance of the Torah, which they refused to do. So God punishes them, destroys the whole northern Israel, and they're all carried off into captivity. But he does spare Judea. It seems that Isaiah had access to the higher echelons of the people of the court, the princely family, and the priests and so forth in Jerusalem at that particular time. The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters, and there's a quite a difference between the first 39 chapters and the last part. The last, I guess, 27 chapters from chapters 40 to 66 in the manuscripts coming from Qumran and the whole ancient tradition is that it's one prophecy. But contemporary scholars in the last 200 years are convinced that the second part of Isaiah was written not during the time of Isaiah, but after the um, captivity or during the captivity in Babylon uh, around 550 or something like that, after the fall of Jerusalem, whereas Isaiah lived 200 years before that. 
because it makes explicit references to things that took place in the fall of Jerusalem and uh, talks about comfort and restoration in the future after they've been demolished and destroyed and the people have been carried off to Babylon and there is no more Israel. The majority of scholars, contemporary scholars, hold that there's a second Isaiah who is the author of chapters 40 to 66. As I say though, like in the manuscripts from Qumran and going back 200 years before Christ, there's no indication of that in the manuscripts that have come down to us of the prophecy of Isaiah. The book is kind of a collection of oracles that were given by the prophet over a 40-year period. And they relate to before the fall of Samaria in 721, and then after the fall of Samaria, and coming up to the attack of Sennacherib on uh, Jerusalem around the year 701, so up to that time. And certain themes stand out in the prophecy of Isaiah. The first one is that there's only one God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. The idols worshiped by the surrounding neighbors are not gods at all. This is a theme that recurs in most of the prophets, denunciation of idol worship. And the special characteristic of God, which was revealed to Isaiah, is the holiness of God or the transcendence of God. He sees the angelic host worshiping God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, which are words which are incorporated in the Mass, in the Catholic Mass, taken from that passage in Isaiah. Next, the main ideas in Isaiah are God's perfections are reflected in his creation, so that the whole earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. The Lord Yahweh is the sole master of history, and he may intervene and direct it anytime he wishes and any way he may wish. Thirdly, the relations between Yahweh and Israel are regulated by the Sinai covenant made between Moses and Israel. As I said before, that covenant recurs all the way through, and all the prophets are calling the people to observe the covenant, to keep the Ten Commandments, especially the first commandment, to worship the Lord God of Israel and Him alone, and not have any gods beside Him, and that is no idols. Another concept in Isaiah is the notion of the remnant, the remnant, a small group, because most of the people in the north were destroyed, they were carried off into captivity, but at some future point, some of them are going to come back and continue the tradition of Israel. All, many might think, all these various peoples of the time of Israel, they've all disappeared from history. The Persians, the Assyrians, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Egyptians of the time and so forth, they all disappeared, but one group still remains, and that's Israel. And that's accomplished through this remnant. And the reason for the remnant is because of God's promise to David that there would be always somebody on his throne forever, which is ultimately realized in Christ our Lord, so that there has to always be a remnant, no matter how God punishes them and how many of them are killed and destroyed, some are always saved to carry on the tradition of Israel. So in Isaiah, there's an emphasis on this notion of the remnant that's going to return and to restore Jerusalem and continue the true worship of the Lord Yahweh in the temple in Jerusalem. And the last part of his prophecy in those last chapters, it's called the Book of Consolation, Isaiah speaks about a new and glorious age 
which will come for Israel in the future. And he tends to emphasize the new age more than the person of the Messiah, who will be acting on behalf of God. So he doesn't think also in terms of the divinity of the Messiah, but as God's agent. And finally, Isaiah taught that Jerusalem enjoyed special privileges from God because Yahweh ruled from the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this is another thing I've tried to bring out in this series is the temple, the theme of the temple, which runs all the way through the Bible, how important the temple is in the fulfillment of all these things in the Old Testament, that the true temple is Christ our Lord, and this takes place his presence in the church at the present time. But in the Old Testament, it's that physical temple in Jerusalem because that locates a certain place where God is present to his people and he manifests himself in various ways, as he did, for example, to the father of John the Baptist, Zachary, when he went in to burn incense and the angel appeared to him and told him that he was going to be the father of a son, even though he and his wife were of advanced age. In the second or last part also of Isaiah, you've had what's called the servant songs, which on the first level, literal level, apply to the Israelites, but in a spiritual sense, they apply to Christ. So you have the four servant songs, which are very important for those who are taking this course to look up those four servant songs and study them. The first one is in chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. The second one, chapter 49, verses 1 to 7. Third one, chapter 50, verses 4 to 9. And the fourth one, chapter 52, verse 13, to chapter 53, verse 12. The last one is called the Song of the Suffering Servant, because the servant is there described as undergoing horrible sufferings. The first level of application is to Israel, what Israel suffered from their enemies. But the fuller sense of that, as it applies in the liturgy of the church and the understanding of the fathers of the church, the fullness of that is verified in the passion of Christ, in his crucifixion, his scourging, being nailed to the cross, being pierced by the lance. That's the fulfillment of that prophecy of the suffering servant. Some of the principal themes then of this section, the last part of Isaiah's prophecy, are the universalism of God's salvation. His salvation is intended for all mankind, not just for the Hebrews. He is the creator of the world and he directs world history with a special concern for Israel and for Jerusalem. He will send a Messiah and has prepared a glorious future for those who remain faithful to him and who keep his covenant. The most basic idea in the theology of Isaiah is his notion of the holiness of the Lord and the absolute transcendence of God and his total hatred of sin. And this battle against sin is what's characteristic of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets in general. The proper response that Isaiah wants from the Israelites of his time and the proper response of man to God's holiness and his divine plan is faith, by which Isaiah means the acceptance of God's plan and of his will and this power to accomplish it. And this fundamental sin for Isaiah is the refusal to put one's faith in Yahweh. And this unbelief is the source of all the vices which Isaiah saw in his society, both individual and social. So they are punished and they suffer 
and the north is destroyed and eventually Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the Babylonians because they are not faithful to the covenant that they have committed themselves to. So there you find kind of a basic outline of some of the basic notions of the great prophecy of Isaiah. I might mention in passing that the book most quoted in the New Testament is the book of Psalms. After the book of Psalms, the most quoted book in the New Testament is Isaiah. There are 41 explicit quotes from different passages in the New Testament. And this occurs in 66 different places in the New Testament. So that's a little bit of numbers there just to indicate how often the book of Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament. The next major prophet who comes about 70 years after Isaiah is Jeremiah. Jeremiah is sometimes described as a reluctant prophet because he was very young. He was probably about 20, 21 years old when he was called by the Lord God to be a prophet. He was born in 645 before Christ and he began to prophesy in the year 627 which was about 30 years before or 40 years before the fall of Jerusalem and he prophesied on and off from 627 down to 587 before Christ. Jeremiah lived in a time of tremendous social turmoil and war where they were besieged by Assyrians and then the Babylonians came along. The Babylonians destroyed the Assyrians in 612. And then the Babylonians came and conquered Jerusalem in the year 597, set up their own king. They rebelled again in 587. They returned and totally destroyed the city. So Jeremiah lived through all of this. The dominant theme of Jeremiah is the devastating consequences of sin. Jeremiah told the king and the leaders that they had to reform their lives and they had to avoid involvement with foreign nations entering into treaties with the Egyptians and the Syrians and so forth to fight against the Babylonians, but they had to rely on the Lord Yahweh for their future and for their protection. They refused to do that. And he said, if you get involved in these foreign treaties, like with the Egyptians, and you do not restore the true worship of the Lord, you're going to be destroyed. You're all going to be carried off into captivity. And they laughed him to scorn. They persecuted him. They beat him. They threw him in a well, in a cistern, and so forth. He was persecuted in many ways, poor Jeremiah, because nobody would listen to what he had to say. But everything he said that was going to happen actually happened. It came true, and that's one of the signs, as I mentioned before, one of the signs of a true prophet is that when he makes a prophecy, that that prophecy becomes true. So in the thinking of Jeremiah, God punishes the sinner in order to heal him, to bring him to repentance and a change of heart. It's not just out of hostility, just punishment for the sake of punishment. The purpose is to purify and to heal and to bring to repentance and change. Jeremiah was deeply moved by the knowledge of Yahweh who is utter mystery. And at the same time is goodness beyond comprehension. Jeremiah is the prophet of the interior life. He denounces mere externalism in religion. He wants the people to have a change of heart. And he mentions that 
in chapter 31 where he talks about a new covenant and a new heart and God's going to take out that heart of stone that you have and give you a heart of flesh and there's going to be a change. This is what's going to come about in the future when the Messiah comes, who is Jesus the Lord many centuries later. But he's kind of like the prophet of the interior life. He speaks about the circumcision of the heart and a new covenant which God will write on the fleshly tablets of the heart. Now, many oracles of Jeremiah concern two major points. First, oracles about the political and social situation of the time. All the prophets, they're making statements about the politics and society of their time. In the wisdom books, you don't have that. In the history books, you do, and also in the prophetic books. And secondly, there are oracles about himself and his relationship with Yahweh. Jeremiah is the most personal and the most self-revealing of all the prophets. He's kind of like St. Augustine in that sense in his confessions, that we learn a lot about the interior anguish and life of Jeremiah in carrying out his role as being a prophet chosen by God. He began to prophesy during the reign of King Josiah, who reigned from 640 to 609, and this period saw the collapse of the mighty Assyrian Empire and the rise of Babylon. There was excitement about the Deuteronomic reform at Jerusalem when the book of the law was found in the temple in 622 and read to the people. So Josiah the next year began a real reform of the religion which Jeremiah was totally in favor of and encouraged. But when he died, he was followed by his son Jehoiakim who ruled from 609 to 697. He was a ruthless and crafty tyrant who despised Jeremiah and he entered into various leagues with foreign nations. The Babylonians resisted that and they came and destroyed him, carried him off into captivity. They put their own king in charge, King Zedekiah, who lasted for about 10 years. And again, the prophet Jeremiah went to the king and said, you have to enforce the law of Moses and don't get involved in any foreign treaties and don't rebel against the Babylonians, otherwise they're going to come and destroy you. He wouldn't listen to him, and his advisors wouldn't listen to him. They put him in jail, they persecuted him, so forth. They entered into these treaties, they rebelled against the Babylonians, and the Babylonians came, as you know, in the year 587, they broke the walls, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, the Ark of the Covenant disappeared, all the Jewish people were dispersed, and they left a few peasants in the land. That's all that was left. The leaders, the intellectual leaders, were all carried off into captivity over into Babylon for 50 years, from 587 down to 537, when the Babylonians were conquered now by the Persians, Cyrus, and Cyrus came up with this decree saying that all these deported peoples should go back to their own countries, and it's because of that then that the Hebrews, the Israelites, over in Babylon were able to return to Jerusalem and rebuild it. Now, a special characteristic of the theology of Jeremiah is the proclamation of a new covenant inscribed in the heart of each believer. And this new covenant was to be the fulfillment and completion of the Mosaic Law and the Mosaic Covenant on Exodus. The main passage is found, and you want to look this up, in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. And Jeremiah declares forcefully that sin brings on its own sorrow. Like the other prophets, 
Jeremiah condemns idol worship and injustice in dealing with others. Also, we find the Deuteronomic history and Deuteronomic theology in Jeremiah. There's an emphasis on personal prayer, and he kind of debates with God, discussion with God. So it's very personal in Jeremiah's dealings, and he bemoans his situation. He's a reluctant prophet, but he follows the will of God. Now, in the New Testament, Jeremiah is quoted seven times. In a broader sense, Jeremiah prefigures Jesus in certain aspects of his own personal life. First of all, his call to prophetic celibacy. He was never married. God told him he was not to marry. His rejection in his native village, as Jesus was rejected in Nazareth, and his prophecy of the destruction of the temple. He prophesied the temple would be destroyed, and that's what happened. His prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem, which Jesus also did, and his trial because of his preaching about the temple, just as Jesus was tried because of his teaching and put to death, and he suffers at the hands of his own people like the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Now, the letter to the Hebrews twice quotes Jeremiah's oracle about the new covenant, and St. Paul alludes to Jeremiah three or four times in his letter. So Jeremiah and Isaiah are two of the great prophets of the Old Testament. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.